Hello and welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, Patrick Farrell, and Dr. Nicola Flanagan. Very happy to have you guys here again. We're continuing with the female series, and today we're going to be talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, which you may have heard of. Um, it's actually an area that has a surprising amount of kind of quackery attached to it, and that's probably because there's not necessarily that much like high quality evidence on conventional medical approaches, I guess you could say. Um, and when anytime we see that happen, uh, what ends up kind of uh, filling that gap is a lot of the functional medicine and supplement uh, side of the industry. So uh, there's a gap in the market, Gary, it has to be filled. Exactly, there's a gap in the market. So we're going to exploit that gap in the market today by giving you all of the secrets. And uh, Nicola's gonna shed some light on those secrets. Yeah. Okay. So PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's a really common um, but complex endocrine disorder that affects about one in 10 women um, in Ireland or in the Western world. It's something that goes undiagnosed for a long time. Um, and it's something that's underdiagnosed in a lot of women as well. And it's one of the leading causes of infertility um, in the Western world too. So it's, it's a multi-system um, issue um that can be characterized um through three kind of main criteria now, these criteria are heavily debated um and it's not really all inclusive um but it's mainly characterized by menstrual cycle irregularities so whether that's irregular periods whether that's an cycles um an increase in androgens as well so that's kind of the male sex hormones this would manifest in things like um you know male kind of pattern hair so that that's on kind of your chin back chest etc oily skin um and then finally polycystic ovaries so this is where you'll have a number of ovaries on the cysts a number, number of uh, cysts on your ovaries um, excuse me but the thing is is that many women have cysts on their ovaries and don't necessarily have pcos and then there's women with pcos that might not have that might not fit the criteria of having polycystic ovaries as well so that's something that's generally diagnosed from an ultrasound and it's not just classified or diagnosed with having um, cysts on your ovaries it's dependent on the amount and the size etc now those criteria don't necessarily encompass all of PCOS. You have a lot of other things going on, like, um, you know, reduced insulin sensitivity. Um, a lot of women will be suffering with obesity and metabolic syndromes like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia. Um, there's a lot of like long term consequences of PCOS as well, like the aforementioned um, metabolic syndromes. You can have issues kind of with bone health um, you can have issues kind of with endometrial hyperplasia. Um, mood disturbances are really common, like anxiety and depression. It's hard to know whether that's kind of a chicken or the egg scenario. It's likely that they both kind of influence each other. And then fertility then is, is a big one and a big issue for, for a lot of women as well. Um, I suppose the, the important thing with um, PCOS is to talk to your doctor about it. Um, there's a lot of other um, syndromes and disorders that can mimic PCOS and it's important to rule them out as well. So it's not something you want to go self-diagnosing yourself. Um, you know, you need to really kind of thyroid issues um you know issues with the pituitary like hyperprolactinemia um, and then other issues that can um 
mimic an increase in androgens as well. So whether that's Cushing syndrome or um, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So those need to be kind of discussed with, with your doctor first and foremost. Yeah. And, and this is really important to just start off by saying that, first of all, I'm an idiot. I'm not a doctor. Gary is like three quarters of a doctor. Nicola is a doctor. But even listening to all of us, <clears throat> you're going to have to go to a doctor to get a diagnosis of this. You can't just do this thing that you see. It's very prevalent on you know, social media or forums, especially around like say thyroid issues. People go, yeah, I think I have a thyroid issue. And they never go to their doctor to get it diagnosed. And people will say like, I, I think I might have PCOS or I have something going on there and never go to their doctor and get it diagnosed or get help. So look, we can't diagnose you via a podcast. You have to go to your doctor. You have to find out what's going on. It does. It is actually really important to dig a little bit deeper with this stuff and actually effectively like see what's under the hood what's going on you know what's going on with your health because it kind of seems one of these things or seems like one of these things where people will just kind of go oh yeah like it's pcos it's kind of annoying to have but you know yolo right but in reality like it's actually associated with a lot of risks a lot of long-term risks and you might not be thinking in your 20s you might be like ah like it's a it's really annoying maybe you'd be like oh fat loss is a little bit harder that's about it. That's the, that's the extent. Now, obviously I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, facetious here, but you're just like, oh, fat loss. That's the thing. Like, it's actually something that you really need to be thinking about because maybe later on in your life, you're like, I want to have kids. It potentially affects that later on in your life. You're like, okay, well, actually there's a higher degree of like heart disease in my family. And now you have another thing that's potentially increasing your risk of heart disease, or maybe there's like metabolic syndrome related diseases in your family. And you have a, another thing that's increasing your risk of metabolic syndrome. So it, it is something that is really important to pay attention to. So before you listen to the rest of this podcast, if you're like, yeah, maybe actually PCOS, that's me. And you haven't gone to the doctor to get a diagnosis or, you know, investigate this further. That is your first step, right? We're going to go under the assumption that right now, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I have PCOS, it's because you've been diagnosed with PCOS. So all of the stuff, the practical stuff or whatever that we talk about later on, we're going under the assumption that you have an actual like diagnosis of this stuff, or you're just interested in learning about this stuff. Yeah. But, uh, one of the things I would like to also bring up is that uh, in athletes, it seems that PCOS is a, a bit of an advantage. Now this is actually kind of like poorly uh, researched because obviously with athletes, you don't know what the fuck is going on. Loads of athletes take drugs. You know, you're, you can't really be like, Oh, it's the PCOS you know, or whatever. Like we don't know, right? Um, but you could argue that it is a bit of a like an advantage in certain sports at least, right? Because you have this like hyperandrogen, you know, thing going on where you're like, okay, you've got more androgens than the average woman. So all of a sudden you have we'll call it a quote unquote better response to training. You have potentially uh, abilities to handle you know more intensity you have those like risk-taking things that we talked about before about you know uh, testosterone it's like you're more willing to do things that a man is willing to do and that can be first of all advantage i was actually reading a lot of research uh, for this as well about like women with pcos in the workplace as well and they seem to get higher pay because they they reckon it's because they're more assertive they're able to go like i'm going to actually like ask for that money or that kind of stuff so it's not like PCOS doesn't have certain advantages in certain subpopulations, but that doesn't mean that we have to just kind of go, oh yeah, like this is, this is just something to, to not think about it. But I'm interested to hear either of your opinions on, on that or your thoughts on that. I shouldn't say opinions, it's your thoughts. 
Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. And I think like thinking back to the subtypes of PCOS, like you're saying, you can, for a diagnosis, you're looking to have kind of two of the three. So whether it's the kind of menstrual cycle irregularities, the increase in androgens and the polycystic ovaries. So you can have two of them and still be diagnosed with PCOS. But if you're just say an athlete and you're someone who has the increase in androgens, like absolutely that can be an advantage. But if you also have menstrual cycle irregularities, um, and we were spoken in the last podcast about amenorrhea and the knock-on effects of having kind of low estrogen on bone health, et cetera. If you're an athlete um, and your hormones are flatlined and you get a stress fracture or something, that's completely knocking you out of the water of kind of your, um, you know, athletic ability. So if you're someone who's has the increase in androgens, maybe polycystic ovaries, maybe you're on to a win, but um, maybe not, not if you've been. That's actually interesting as well, because I was reading another like a few, well, a few papers, I think it was like between 20 and 40% of women who present with amenorrhea in that sporting context do also have PCOS. So it's like, you know, you could have a winner in terms of you're like, all right, I have the androgens here to the testosterone or whatever to help with my sport. Maybe, you know, I'm able to get stronger and, you know, have a little slightly increased reaction time, whatever it is. But now you've also got amenorrhea and yeah, the higher testosterone helps you in the you know, first few months, years of your training, but all of a sudden you're a few years in and you're getting stress fractures or, you know, you've got all these other things going on that lead to you having a shorter career. So it, it is interesting. Um, but anyway, look, we won't talk about subpopulations because the vast majority of these people or these people, the people listening to this are probably not in a subpopulation. You know, you might be like, all right, well, people who go to the gym, maybe they're part of the subpopulation of athletes. But in reality, like, you know, it's probably just, you know, one in 10 that are listening to this, like the, the average statistic, you know? Um, I don't know. You, you, you kind of, we're going to go into the symptoms there. We did kind of touch on a lot of the symptoms. I don't know if you want to go into any more depth on any of those. Um, yeah. So, you know, like you're we saying, there's loads of different subtypes and kind of PCOS is a collection of symptoms. And because of the different subtypes, it, it's going to present differently for a lot of women. And I suppose what's unfortunate about it is there's a huge delayed diagnosis for um, a lot of young women and girls. And that partly comes back to, you know, when you're kind of 15, 16 and, you know, you're breaking out and all this acne. Often the first protocol is to go on the pill. Um, and what we see, and it, it, it's an issue with um, a lot of my clients, is that, you know, they put on the pill at like, you know, 14, 15. And again, nothing to do with, you know, contraception. And then, you know, it's suddenly eight years later and they're like, I don't have a clue what my periods are like. You know, um, they might be someone who um, suffers with ovarian cysts, but it's never really been investigated. They don't fit, necessarily fit the criteria of PCOS because they've been on the pill for years. Now they're in, you know, long term relationships. That they don't want to come off the pill. Um, and you're just kind of in this kind of conundrum where you're like, you know, do I have this? Do I not? If I come off the pill, um, you know, am I going to have these crazy periods? Am I going to be, you know, infertile? It can be a huge like um, cause of concern for, for a lot of women um so yeah so like we're saying we kind of went through a lot of the symptoms already but it, it is going to look um very different to a lot of people so like we we're saying the maybe the absence of a period the irregular periods the um excessive hair growth um you know kind of cysts and again cysts are really normal and most women will um have kind of a physiological ovarian cyst you know at one stage that generally will just resolve on its own and won't cause many issues um, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have pcos 
um, you know, you've weight gain. Um, there's also the lean type of, of PCOS, which I'm sure we'll get onto. Um, so it's not really, um, it's not something that kind of, everyone doesn't fit into the, to the one box with PCOS, which again, just makes the diagnosis a lot messier. Yeah. And I, I've seen that a lot in clients as well, where they'll come in and go, all right, well, I've been on the pill since I was whatever, 13, 14, 15, like basically they started having periods and they're almost straight onto the pill, you know? And like, that's, that's fair enough. That has something to be discussed with your doctor, et cetera. Right. But they get to that, you know, early twenties age, maybe even late twenties. And they're kind of going, I don't know what my like quote unquote normal cycle is like, you know, and that's in just you know, the, the general population. But you can imagine then if you have something else going on, such as PCOS and you're kind of going, well, I don't know. I've had all these symptoms and I'm kind of going, maybe it's because of this, you know, how do you do the experiment? How do you, like, what do you do? Oh, I'm just going to come off the pill and hope that everything, you know, comes back to normal that, or it's like normal. If you've always been on the pill, like you don't know what your normal is, you know, you're like, I'm just going to see what happens. Like that can take six months to kind of really get everything going back even longer, even in some cases. So it's very hard to really dial in. And then you also have to deal with, this is not a, oh, here's the exact criteria and here's the exact like symptom list. This is a very, or at least it seems messy kind of uh, thing where it's like, oh, yeah, you could have this and maybe this and these symptoms here and this could be it. And then like you're kind of like chasing your tail a lot of the time going, well, I don't know what's going on. So this is, again, you have to talk to this stuff with your doctor. Talk, I can't even speak to that. You have to talk about this stuff with your doctor because they're going to be able to do further investigation. They're going to be able to do like an ultrasound and like actually look at your ovaries and stuff. Like you're not going to just go, hmm, I think I actually have a, you know, a cyst on my ovary. Like you're not going to necessarily feel that and go, yeah, that's, that's exactly what's going on, you know? So I would recommend the people, if they think they have this going on, PCOS, talk to your doctor. I know a lot of people are hesitant to talk to their doctor, regardless of the population. They're kind of like, oh, well, like, you know, the last time I went to the doctor, they just told me to lose weight. Or, you know, last time I went to the doctor, they just, they just said this. And you're kind of like, I understand that it can be a, you know, annoying thing to do, frustrating thing to do. It's somewhat even like psychologically damaging thing to do. Like you go to your doctor and you're dealing with, you know, PCOS and you have like weight gain that you're not, not happy about. And their only recommendation is, yeah, it's probably just because, you know, you've gained weight or whatever. Like that's obviously not helpful. So I understand that perspective, but, you know, especially in a lot of the Western world countries, at least like you can go to a different doctor. You can go and go, all right, that doctor, they're just not a good doctor for, for you. They might be great at other things, but you, you can go to a different GP, you know, in a lot of cases, obviously, look, if you live in an area and there's one GP for, you know, fucking hundreds of miles, like, you know, you're, you're kind of fucked. But in a lot of cases, you can go to someone else, talk to someone, find someone that will actually help you. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Right. So we could talk about what causes it. And I'd love to have this nice, like beautiful explanation of this is exactly what causes PCOS. This is the the entire like start to finish. Uh, Avoid these things. Make sure you don't do these things if you don't want to have PCOS or you don't want your children to have PCOS. However, we don't have a fucking clue right there's a lot like again i read a lot of research on this stuff and there's a lot of different theories there's a lot of like oh it's potentially the you know uterine environment you know this could be the the reason that you know it seems to run in families could be genetic related as well which would also explain why it runs in families but then also you just have all these 
different things going on. For example, like if people get uh, IVF or different things like that, any kind of assisted fertility seems to increase the risk of uh, PCOS in some studies, but <laughs> not in others. So you're kind of going like, I don't know what the actual cause of this is. And luckily and unluckily as well, uh, we don't necessarily need to do that, at least for the stuff that we want to talk about, right? We don't need to know what causes this. I'm sure both of you have kind of theory on like, maybe I actually think it, it's a bit more, it's probably this, or maybe these two things, these are the, the biggest, you know, prevalent things that to get the causes, but we really don't know, you know? But again, we don't need to know because what we actually care about is like, what can we actually do about this stuff, right? What can we do about PCOS? Because that's probably what the vast majority of people actually care about. Like if you go on any of these forums, like you type in like PCOS and just type in like Reddit or whatever, right? And like you see it, people just want to know how to deal with their symptoms. People want to know how to deal with um, like all the things that are going on. They want to deal with, oh, well, maybe I, I actually want to have kids in a few years. How do I make sure that my fertility is as good as it can be? Or they're like, all right, actually, I don't like this weight gain or I don't like uh, the increased risk of heart disease. I don't think anyone really likes that. Um, you know, different things. They're kind of looking for a more practical way to manage this stuff. They're kind of going, right, I have these symptoms. I have these issues. It's related to this PCOS. What is the checklist? How do I get going with this stuff, right? Um, so before we really get stuck into the kind of what can you do about it, right? The first question, I suppose you have to ask, and again, both of you can chime in here. Can you cure PCOS? Right, because that's obviously the first thing you're going to go. All right, I've got this diagnosis from my doctor. Is this something that's quote unquote curable? You know, like if you go into the doctor and you're like, I have, I don't know, they tell you you have some sort of illness. Like you're going to go, whoa, is that is that curable? Is that something that can be fixed, gone, forever, or is it something that I'm just going to have to manage? Like I'm going to have to manage the symptoms for the rest of my life. So what, what's the story there? So I think for this one, no, is the, I was the easy, easy and short answer, but you, you can absolutely manage symptoms and it, it just depends what symptoms and what exactly, not even symptoms, you know, in terms of infertility, what you're trying to manage, like it is, like you're saying a big cause of infertility, but that can also be um, helped and reversed as well. Um, so not necessarily cured, but absolutely it, it can be managed. What about your thoughts, Gary? Do you think it can be cured? Yeah, I, I mean, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with Nicola. Um, I think that there's there's a certain element of reversibility or remission, one might say. It's, it's kind of a little bit like the type 2 diabetes discussion. Like, can you entirely cure it? Probably not. Can you put it into remission? Maybe. But it depends on the person's baseline. So, for example, if we were to look at the two phenotypes of obese versus lean PCOS, the person with obese PCOS has that additional window of opportunity where weight loss is likely to improve a lot of the elements of PCOS. Um, whereas the person who's already lean uh, with PCOS might have a little bit less uh, room for improvement there already. So it depends on where you're starting. Um, there is research to show that you can absolutely improve a lot of the syndromic features of PCOS, um, often with weight loss and improvements in um, lifestyle and all the other measures that we'll get onto. So I would view it as something that you're maybe trying to reduce the symptoms of, reduce the features of, potentially put into remission, but not necessarily something that you're looking for um, a cure in relation to. That's fantastic. And because you brought it up there, 
and we did talk about it earlier on in terms of there being different subtypes. What's the story between this lean PCOS and overweight PCOS? I've never heard of those terms. Tell me about them. Yes. Go ahead, Nick. No, 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 you go on. Go on. I was just going to say that it's 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 sort of a little bit like the um, evolution in the understanding of uh, type two diabetes, I guess, because uh, and these are related in some sense because a lot of the ways or uh, the immediate image that probably comes to your head when you think of type two diabetes is probably someone who's overweight. That's often and they're very they are tightly um, related for sure. But you can have type two diabetes at relatively low. BMIs, you know, you could have a BMI in the healthy range and have two type two diabetes. And it sort of depends on the features of that phenotype. So for example, adipose tissue dis distribution, if you have a lot of central adiposity, a lot of body fat around your abdomen, particularly visceral adiposity around your organs, uh, that can predispose you to type two diabetes and propagate that um, cycle of the pathogenesis. And it's sort of similar in PCOS where there's a spectrum um, of the individual who's quite lean, but they still might have a higher level of visceral adiposity. And then the person who is um, overtly obese, I guess you could say in the sense that they have an obese BMI um, and they fit the more classical uh, description of having excess body fat. So you can absolutely have PCOS while being in a healthy BMI range for sure. Um, you can even be quite lean with it. Um, but I think, uh, the vast majority would fit into the category of having higher levels of adipose tissue. Um, it's just that there are, again, um, exceptions to that rule similar uh, to type 2 diabetes. Anything to add to that? Not really exactly like Gary was saying. It gets, it's um, like a multifactorial disease and it's, it, we don't fit neatly in, into these boxes and that's why you see such, such a range and such a variation between women. 100%. And that makes recommendations hard, right? So when we're talking about this stuff, when we go, what can you do about this? You have to realize that we're talking in generalities. Like, yeah, we're going to qualify some of this stuff and go, you know, maybe if you have this going on, you know, you think about this. But in reality, you're kind of in a position where you do have to do a little bit of self-experimentation. You have to kind of go, right, this is the general recommendation for someone with PCOS. How does that apply to me? Do I have this lean PCOS? <clears throat> phenotype do i have this overweight P P pcos phenotype do i have this going on like what are the you know symptom of, or the criteria do i have um like you have to kind of dig a little bit deeper with that stuff now having said that a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about it does kind of apply across the board we'll say like a lot of the things that you can do for pcos are just generally good diet health practices the thing about it is if you have pcos you just have to be more on top of this stuff right like if you're just a quote-unquote healthy population like you can kind of go oh, i can get away with doing this thing i can get away with doing this thing it doesn't really you know impact me too much whereas if you have pcos you kind of have to stay on top of this stuff a little bit more than the regular person than the quote-unquote normal person does right so that is one of those things that again it's unfortunate i wish the world was completely equal and we didn't have these like populations where you're like you actually need to be more attentive and you're going to have a harder time with it you know <laughs> like i wish that wasn't the case but unfortunately pcos is just one of those like syndromes or diseases that you do kind of just get the shit end of the stick where you're like right you have to you know pay more attention to this stuff you're probably going to have a harder time with it 
And that's just the way it is, you know? And the one of the things that I say to a lot of my clients that do have PCOS or, you know, in, in past, I'm like, look, you can't compare yourself to someone else. Like I say that to a lot of clients in general, where I'm like, a comparison is a thief of joy because you don't know what else is going on in their life. But if you have PCOS, like you can't compare yourself to your friend who's like, oh yeah, like I eat like crap and like I do a little bit of exercise and, you know, everything's all good. I'm able to maintain the body that I want, et cetera. And you're kind of going, well, that's fucking unfair because I'm really on top of this stuff. I'm going out and I'm trying to do the exercise and trying to do like stick to a diet and all this kind of stuff. And then you're not getting the results that you want, right? And obviously that's me talking about that in the context of, you know, body composition or changing your physique or whatever, but also there are health ramifications as well that you're just going to have to deal with that this other person that, you know, I can just, you know, free live here and I don't have to think about this stuff that they just don't have to think about, right? But anyway, where do we start with this, Nicola? So let's say, you know, client starts with you, they come to you, they're like, yeah, look, I need help. I'm, you know, I listen to your podcast on this stuff, you know, but they're like, they're coming to you and they're going, I, I just need help. I need someone to help me dial this stuff in. I need someone to help me with my PCOS. Maybe they've got a, a new diagnosis of it. Maybe they've had it diagnosed for a couple of years, but they're still struggling to figure everything out. Like, what's the starting point, right? So where do we start with all of this stuff? Now, obviously, look, the same with everything we can go down a million avenues from the start, but where do you think is the biggest kind of, you know, lever to pull? Yeah. So even before getting into that, a, a client that started with me on, only last week, um, you know, was diagnosed with PCOS about 10 years ago. Um, and when working with an endocrinologist was put on medications for kind of weight loss uh, that didn't help, just kind of gave her GI issues. Um, but she's never received any dietary advice. Um, which is really kind of unfortunate and, and upsetting. And it kind of just links back to, you know, us thinking that, you know, we need kind of some kind of supplement or some medication to solve this when actually um, lifestyle and dietary advice for PCOS goes a long way. So between nutrition, training and um, stress management and sleep, um, we can make huge progress um, and like you were saying like a, a lot of the things that we're going to be going through are generally things that we would recommend for a client without PCOS anyway a lot of this stuff is like generally you know good dietary practice um, however there are going to be things that just affect um, women with PCOS more than than women without um, so you know we'll be talking about you know the effect of like carbohydrates protein um, on kind of insulin sensitivity and that sort of thing but like you're saying just going back to a lot of these things are just generally good dietary practices um, but yeah where where do we start and I suppose before we get into that there we should actually really just clear or kind of speak we should actually just clarify what we're trying to do with this, you know, what symptoms are we trying to manage? Because the way we're going to talk about it is there's a few things like, you know, the big ticket items will say that we're trying to deal with. One is this issue around carbs, which you can go into in a second. One is this issue around like androgens. And obviously look, you'll, you'll, you'll see in a second that it is related. Um, but what else are we kind of looking at? Because they're kind of the two big ones that seem to be brought up a lot. People are going to go on, I just don't know what to do with my carbs. I hear insulin. I, I just don't know what the story is there. And then I also have this like hyperandrogenism. I have too many of these male hormones, you know, is that all we're dealing with? Or like, what are we trying to manage when we're trying to do you know, different things with the diet, the training, et cetera? 
Yeah, so I suppose we're looking at what the what the starting point is for the person and, and what actually affects them. Like we were saying, there's the, the symptoms and the difficulties range from, from woman to woman. So, um, you know, it isn't we can't just make kind of blanket recommendations. Um, you know, we need to kind of assess the person that's in front, front of us. And, you know, even with, you know, carbon take, like, you know, some people are going to be more insulin sensitive or more insulin, more insulin insensitive. Um, so it, it's going to vary so much from person to person as well you know someone with um you know a lot of the focus for pcos is kind of lose weight um but you know if we have someone in front of us kind of with lean pcos that doesn't necessarily need to lose weight um you know kind of what do we do then we don't need to so much have the focus on 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 weight loss um and it might just be um not only focusing on you know carbon take kind of and protein fats whatever we're also looking at um kind of stress regulation and how kind of food kind of you know fits into that um appetite regulation that that sort of thing 100 and that is really important that like this is not again one symptom list you know it's not like here here's the top three things it's going to be different for everyone right um but I suppose we'll start on the calories, right? Because that's, you know, this is the thing that people are going to go, oh, well, what, what do I do here? Like, yeah, I, where should I set my calories? Or, you know, I see that I should lose weight. I don't know how I should do that. Because look, this is hard for, again, someone in this you know, free living, normal population, people struggle with weight loss, right? So if you have this overweight PCOS phenotype, like, you're probably going to struggle with weight loss more than the average person, you know? Um, and a lot of the things that you can do for this we've talked about before in terms of, you know, just generally losing weight, but one of the major things that I find with people that I've coached with PCOS, like you do have to go a little bit slower, right? And that's a bit annoying because you're probably going to find weight loss a little bit harder, right? If you have PCOS and then being told, Oh, you just have to be slower, more patient. It's a bit frustrating. Um, But it tends to lead to better results. It tends to lead to better results in, again, the general population, but especially with PCOS, like if you just take it a little bit slower. So rather than going into this like 500,000 calorie deficit, trying to burn a million extra calories per day, if you just go a little bit slower and go, all right, I'm actually just going to eat a little bit less, or I'm going to be a little bit more active. Like that seems to really make the world a difference with this stuff. Now, obviously that does mean that it's going to probably take longer. You know, it's probably going to take, like, if you're like, all right, my friend can lose X amount of pounds in 12 weeks. I'm going to try to do the same. And you're like, no, it's actually probably going to take you 24 weeks to 30 weeks to do that. That's frustrating in and of itself. However, it does seem to, at least in my experience, it does seem to get us better results longer term. You know, like you'll have clients say at the end of it going, well, I've always struggled to, to lose weight or I've always struggled to really get the results that I wanted. And it's because they have PCOS, a certain phenotype of PCOS. And now we're kind of going, all right, that means that we, we, we shouldn't be working against that. We should kind of be working with it and kind of go, right, that means that we just need to go a little bit slower with this stuff. But would you guys agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, for, for a, a lot of women with PCOS, just say their, their starting point, they might be, kind of they might be coming to you kind of the most overweight that they've ever been and so they might be looking at losing kind of 30 plus kg you know depending on where they're starting but that is a huge amount of weight so even just letting them know that it, that a, a nice um a, like a good kind of starting point is just like a five percent 
um, weight loss. And that's shown to have, you know, in, um, like improved fertility, um, menstrual cycle um, regulation. So, you know, instead of having this kind of absolute mountains, you're telling someone to take things slow, you know, they're like, no, I need to lose like 30 kg. Um, but actually just kind of aiming for that 5% um, weight loss actually has huge benefits attached to it as well. Yeah. And especially if you are in that kind of overweight PCOS like phenotype, like losing weight improves insulin sensitivity in a lot of cases, not always There's just some specific cases where it potentially wouldn't, but um, losing weight seems to improve insulin sensitivity, which then has knock on effects for all the other stuff. So it does actually kind of become a little bit easier. But one of the things that you will find difficult about this, and we kind of touched on it in the last podcast is if you're in a calorie deficit, the risk of amenorrhea does obviously go up. Now, obviously, if you have a more extreme calorie deficit, that's an even higher risk, you know? So what I often do, and this is something that I'd be interested in both of your opinion on this, what I often do is I'll take things in like chunks. We might diet for eight weeks and then we're like, right, we're taking a two-week maintenance period here, you know? I generally do that with most of my clients. I go, right, we're just defined, we've defined the period of time that we're dieting for, and then we're going to do a maintenance period. But for clients with PCOS, I'm generally thinking like, you know, eight weeks, that's kind of the max. And I'm like, that's fat loss, unless everything's going perfectly fine. And, you know, there's absolutely no reason to kind of stop it. But other than that, I'm kind of like, right, eight weeks, then we're doing a little bit of a, a diet break. So if you, if you want to call it that, and we're eating that maintenance. And the reason I do that is twofold. First of all, like in my experience, at least cravings can get a little bit higher in women that have PCOS. They can find that it's a little bit harder to stick to the diet for a longer period of time, you know? So I'm like, right, we're going to just have a definitive block here of eight weeks, four weeks. It could, it could literally be two weeks, two weeks on one week off kind of job, you know? So whatever method or, you know, protocol you think works the best for you, that's one you can use. But I like this eight weeks, then kind of two weeks off or at maintenance. And that kind of does two things. First of all, it helps with all those cravings. It helps with all those kind of metabolic adaptations that have potentially started to really kick in to the diet. But then also it helps teach people that, oh, I can actually eat at maintenance and I can maintain my weight because this is actually so important in just a general sense, because a lot of people will think that, oh, what I have to do to lose weight is what I have to do for the rest of my life, you know, and that's just not the case, you know, like there's going to be a period of time where you're going to switch to diet focus and you just want to maintain the results that you've gotten, right? So let's practice that. Let's actually practice eating more food because that can be something that in my experience, at least is kind of psychologically a little bit hard for most people, but especially if you have PCOS, because let's assume, right, we're doing this eight weeks of dieting here and we're getting great results. You find, okay, I'm losing some weight. I'm actually, I'm feeling a little bit healthier. I'm feeling like things are on the right track. And then I say, you know what, actually we're going to eat more calories now, you know, that can like psychologically, that can be a little bit hard to do even though you you might want to actually eat more because you're kind of like well everything's going it's going good right now why would i want to mess with the the formula well, like i've struggled with this stuff for the last 5 10 15 years whatever it is and now we've really cracked it no let's just keep going with that and it can be hard to explain or like get people to have that buy in and go this is actually better long term it's actually better long term to take these little breaks even though you think it might interrupt the momentum that you have but what are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a reasonable approach. Um, I haven't coached that many people with PCOS, so I, I don't have enough like practical experience to know which works best. But I do like the overall philosophy. And I think particularly here where someone might potentially have a lot of weight to lose, like Nicola said, let's say someone has 30 kilos of excess body fat and they want to lose all that. Firstly, 
reminding them that you only need about a 5% decrease to see actual meaningful outcomes. And I suppose another tangent on that as well is making sure that those outcomes are actually made clear to the person because someone might come into this with their understanding of PCOS being very loose and their concerns, particularly when they're quite young, being solely cosmetic, you know, that they might say, look, I just want to lose the weight. I want to look better. Not appreciating the effects of, you know, an ovulation, long-term infertility, etc. So making sure that the person is aware of the fertility and cardiometabolic risk considerations and making that an outcome can support someone on that journey then because they're thinking a little bit more long-term, I think. Um, and then obviously reinforcing that, right, if this is a 5% uh, decrease in body weight that we're looking for, here's what that looks like on paper, okay? So let's say it's four kilos, whatever that we have to lose. We're gonna break that down, two kilos in this eight week period, nice and slow and another two kilos in the next eight week period. That doesn't sound like much at all, but over time, uh, those differences can begin to add up, especially someone, if someone is in it for the long run. And when you have those breaks as well, it's sort of like a bit of a checkpoint that you reach along the way, where if you diet for eight weeks, you've learned certain skills during that period of time. So what you could do is then review with the person or review with yourself, what have I learned during this period of time? What worked well, what didn't work well? And then as you go into your next eight week block of dieting, you make a couple of changes, see what worked well, what didn't work well. And over time, you're going through this iterative process of developing a dietary structure that's more appropriate for you. And then that also gives you the time to foster what might be your long-term approach as opposed to solely this short-term diet. Yeah. And one of the things that I often do with that as well is I, I kind of plan out the weight loss. I actually don't like doing this in general, but what I'll do, again, assuming we're trying to lose weight here, but I'll kind of go, right, we want to be in the range of 0.5 to 1% body weight drop per week, right? Now, obviously, that's not going to happen every single week, but the reason I kind of plan that out is because it gets people's head straight going like, oh, that's what I'm actually looking for. You know, it's not this like, oh, I'm going to drop 5% this week, you know, because like, yeah, that can happen the, the first week. You know, you literally go on a lower carb diet, you drop calories, you maybe, I don't know, drop a load of fiber or something. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, look, yeah, look, I dropped five kilos. You know, that's not representative of actual fat loss, right? Um, but look, if we're looking at that kind of 0.5 to 1% body weight drop per week. Like it's a nice range where you're not being too aggressive, like 0.5. It's almost unnoticeable, like in terms of the calorie deficit per day to, to get that. Now, there are a few issues. Obviously, again, we've talked about them in previous episodes where if you're a woman, you might have this fluctuating weight week to week. Now, you might not if you have PCOS, you might be on the pill, for example, and there might be less fluctuation. You know, you might be doing the pill with no breaks, for example, and you might have less fluctuation, but still there's going to be some fluctuation in your weight. So we don't care too much about, oh, you lost only 0.45% uh, body weight this week. You know, it was, you're going to have to drop, you know, more calories or whatever. Like we're not, we don't care about that. We're just looking for that average, that trend in the right direction at a nice slow rate. Right. And the reason I often plan this stuff out is because it actually helps people think longer term in terms of like you get this client that comes to you and they're like i need to lose 30 kilos that's where i want to be at that's where i feel at my best health etc and um, like plan that out and go well this is how long it's going to take this is what it's going to look like if we're going to really be patient with this stuff if we're really going to try to get you to that position in a healthy way while also 
potentially improving the PCOS because what we don't want to have happen, and this is one of those things which is actually really hard. You've got this like razor thin margin here with this stuff. What you don't want to have happen is, yeah, you'd lose a load of weight, but all of a sudden now you're really amenorrheic. You've really dug a hole with that stuff and you've got all the side effects of that and all the issues with that. Like you don't want to just be like, all right, yeah, I'm going to you know, cure my PCOS here, quote unquote cure. I'm going to fix all of the issues here. I'm going to drop a load of weight. I'm going to get the physique that I want. And all of a sudden, yeah, you're 12 weeks in, but you're in a way bigger like recovery deficit, a way bigger hole with regard to this amenorrhea side of things. And now that's becoming a, a bigger issue for you. And if you already potentially have reduced fertility and you already have a condition that potentially increases your risk of amenorrhea or oligomenorrhea, like we don't want to yeah. exacerbate that stuff. However, having said that, like PCOS is one of those ones where I don't mind as much if we do have some amenorrhea going on, right? but we have to be strategic with it. And that sounds really like counter to our health focus. But what I mean by that is if we're dieting and we're getting really good outcomes with that stuff, right? We're really like, all right, we're going to be dieting for the next 16 weeks, for example, or whatever, the next 20 weeks. Like if during that time period, we have some amenorrhea occur, you know, it's just like, all right, it happens. There's nothing we can do about it. We're in a calorie deficit. We're trying to be, you know, careful with this stuff. We're trying to be low and slow with this stuff. We're like, we're not going into an aggressive deficit. Like, that's fine. I can live with that if we're in this kind of 20-week period. Once we have a plan of action after that, that kind of goes, right, how are we dealing with that after, right? Are we increasing calories? How are we doing that? And you can go back and listen to our previous episode on amenorrhea and kind of, you know, figure stuff out there. But the reason I bring that up is because I know a lot of people will try to deal with their PCOS. They'll try to, you know, get some fat loss or weight loss or whatever, really improve this stuff. And then all of a sudden they'll start noticing they get amenorrhea, right? And they could be doing everything right. You know, they could be doing absolutely everything to the T. They're not being too aggressive with their calorie deficit. They're not doing anything like, you know, excessive, but they still encounter amenorrhea. They still get the issues around that. And I don't want people to be discouraged and think, oh, I'm doing something absolutely awful here. I'm like, you know, I've ruined it. I'm not doing this right. Like if you have a condition that increases your risk of amenorrhea, like it is one of those things where unfortunately you just have a higher risk of amenorrhea. So if you do stuff that increases your risk of amenorrhea, you're now at a higher, higher risk, you know, but that's okay in the short term. Like obviously the ideal scenario is that it doesn't occur, but look, it happens, but that's okay in the short term. As long as we have a plan of action after that, how do we recover that normal cycle? How do we get to a position where you are, you know, back to quote-unquote normal or this kind of baseline you know um but i'm interested again to hear your thoughts actually before i forget it one thing that i do also often do is when we're talking about calories is i make sure that we do spread those out throughout the day because like we discussed in that amenorrhea podcast we don't want to do stuff like intermittent fasting we don't want to do stuff like i'm just going to skip meals in the day because you will read that on forums and stuff being like oh intermittent fasting really helps with uh insulin sensitivity you know you'll, you'll hear people say that stuff right and you know maybe potentially in certain circumstances that is the case but we're not going to use that tool to improve insulin sensitivity right the tool we're going to use to improve insulin sensitivity in in most cases especially from what we can talk about and well nicola you can talk about other stuff but <laughs> in terms of what we can talk about uh, as like coaches or whatever we're going to use a calorie deficit so that'll improve uh, insulin sensitivity we're going to use weight loss and then we're potentially maybe you know focusing on a little bit of carb intake we're going to talk about that in a second um, but what i'm not doing is i'm not having large periods of the day where we have low energy availability because that also 
increases your risk of amenorrhea. So we don't want to do all of these things. Like I always think of it like a dimmer switch, you know, like you don't want to just turn the dial all the way up. You know, if you already started, if you're already starting at half the dial because you have PCOS, you have an increased risk of amenorrhea, you're already at half. Yeah. So we don't want to just go, oh, here's this other thing that is normally a quarter turn for you. That's a three quarters of the way around now, you know, so we don't want that to have happen. Right. And, um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that, Nicola, especially. Yeah, it's funny. I think I mentioned intermittent fasting every episode and it's like effect on hormonal disruption. And that's purely because when I started coaching, I think I championed it for everyone. I was like, it's so good. It was like the big thing in fitness back in the day, you know, so I'm like cringing thinking back to that. But so I always mention it now. And, and that that's a huge thing as well, like that you will see with women is pushing out their meals to later in the day. Um, and what we know, not only kind of for, for PCOS, but again, for the general population, actually kind of front loading your, your calorie intake or your energy intake more towards the start of the day will have can have improvements, you know, in insulin sensitivity in um, you know, kind of a hormonal regulating kind of your menstrual cycle, that that sort of thing and kind of having it more in touch with your circadian rhythm. So having more calories at the start of the day and not having the bulk more towards the end, that can be really helpful. Um, and like we need to, you know, not forget that kind of going, you know, without food for long periods can increase our cortisol. Having that intermittent fasting to start of the day, if you're training at the start of the day, um, you know, you're fasted and you're training just again, that kind of stress hormone hormone can go through the roof. And again, cause that hormonal disruption as well, you know, um, reducing your calories. Again, that is an, an energy deficit, um, which is a stress state. So we need to, you know, not forget that as well, that there can be, you know, a lot going on. Um, so really not only monitoring your energy intake, um, but how, what proportion of calories you're having when are you leaving big gaps in the day? Um, and then obviously the, the composition of meals as well. And what I say to, you know, clients is like, we can get into like really the, the kind of nitty gritty of, you know, um, how many carbs you're having, how many fats you're having, you know, we can have it down to a T, but we really need to sort out some of the like low hanging fruit first. And that is the fact that you're leaving like eight hours in the day without food, you know? Um, so just making sure that you are having, you know, that having lunch, essentially, that's the biggest one that people call, you know? Or even breakfast as well. Like you see, yeah, the, right, yeah. it's lunch and breakfast. They're the two ones that are kind of like, oh, like, yeah. you know, it's either like, I'll have a snack. I'll have a little small bite. And we're talking here like 50 calories for, for lunch or breakfast. They're just like, oh, like, no, nah, I'll just I'll start later in the day. And that can be fine. That's the thing. This is not like, a, oh, you could never do this. We never recommend that. Like I have clients that intermittent fast, women as well, you know, and it's just yeah, the schedule is perfectly fine, right? But when we're talking about PCOS here, or we're talking about trying to do everything in our power to make sure that we get like symptom resolution or get a better outcome, like we're not going to do these things that we know potentially impact negatively on those outcomes. And um, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Gary. Do you ever use intermittent fasting with any PCOS or would you recommend it? Not particularly really. I mean like I don't generally recommend intermittent fasting um as a rule like it's not something I, I regularly prescribe for people like i'll give it to them as a a loose option you know like all right you're having difficulty controlling your intake um in the evening maybe that's they have a large meal with their family or something i might get them to push breakfast back a little bit and keep it a bit lighter or something but i'm very rarely encouraging people to engage in like 
prolonged fasting beyond 14, 16 hours, you know. Generally, I like to encourage people, regardless um, of their baseline state of health, to develop an eating pattern that they're going to be able to maintain that is that fits in with a normal social life that fits in with their normal family life etc so that's generally what i'm encouraging in the vast majority of people um if i decline with pcos it, it wouldn't be any different the only time that i will encourage a bit more of a fasting type of approach would be in that person who's having a bit of difficulty with adherence and seems to find um, fasting to be superior. Um, if that was the only way that someone with um, PCOS and obesity was able to maintain a deficit, it might be a net positive. Um, it just depends on the, the individual context. And one thing that is important as well, you mentioned it in terms of the, the amenorrhea discussion, you can have coexisting um, PCOS or just polycystic ovaries and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. So from low energy availability, um, that's really important, really important to distinguish, to identify. Um, that's why you need a good doctor that's familiar with PCOS um, because you could just look at the presentation of amenorrhea and identify one or the other. And the, the, bad, the sad thing about this is that you can somehow, if you have both of these things, so with functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, there's a higher, rate of uh, PCOS within that group and polycystic ovaries within that group. And one of the things that you get from PCOS that might be a bit of a benefit is stronger bones. So you get those androgens and you get an increase or decreased risk of um, bone mineral density loss and fracture as a result. However, functional hy hypothalamic amenorrhea basically wipes that out. So you're basically getting the worst of both worlds together if you have these coexisting. And that's one of the reasons, again, it's just important to um, that your doctor does a complete assessment and that you're dealing with that with them because there are different things that can be measured as part of the work up here. It's not just the, uh, your estrogen, progesterone, LH, FSH. You're also looking at things like obviously the androgens, anti-malarian hormone, and the ultrasound, like we mentioned previously. There's a lot of different elements of the work up there. So again, see your doctor, because that's a difficult enough one to distinguish. And it's probably something that even, like if you go to your GP, they're not gonna be probably familiar with, you know, the coexistence of FHA and PCOS and being able to differentiate those properly. But there's also a really weird situation that can occur where you can actually get symptom resolution, like some of your PCOS symptom resolution by becoming functionally amenorrheic, like uh, uh, like FHA, right? Because all of a sudden you start getting a reduction in androgens, you start getting a reduction in all of these other things, all these other hormones, because you've basically shut down <laughs> your endocrine system because you're not feeding yourself, you know? So you can get this kind of temporary like symptom resolution and go, what I'm doing is working. Yes, I've figured it out but it's actually a long-term negative. You get this short-term like, oh, I'm in a good place because you've got a reduction in circulating hormones because you're basically completely infertile because you've shut yourself down. Well, not completely, but you're infertile because you've shut yourself down from eating so little food. And yeah, you get this mild symptom reduction, but it's not the long-term thing that we want because what happens when you start eating more food or what happens when you actually want to have a child or what happens when, Oh, my actual bone mineral density is now fucked. You know, it's like all of these things we have to be thinking longer term, you know, but anyway, look, that's the, that's the calorie side of things, carbohydrates. Cause this I know is the next thing, right? Cause we're talking about 
insulin sensitivity. Maybe you want to talk about that in a second, uh, Nicola, in terms of like, what is insulin sensitivity? Why should we care about it, right? Um, but we're talking about that. Like we often bring it up, you know, it's like, oh, we talk about it in a general context, but then you talk about PCOS and people will say insulin sensitivity or, oh, my carb tolerance, or they'll talk about carbohydrates. So there's a lot of talk about carbohydrates in the PCOS sphere and a lot of the research on it is kind of mixed so obviously that again leads to a gap in the market um but what's the story here let's talk about this carbohydrate stuff why do we care about carbohydrates let's say we get our calories really dialed in we're like yes okay i know i should be eating this much i've done uh you know we often recommend there's two different methods you can use to really figure out your calories you can plug all your data into one of these online calculators that's fine gives you an idea gives you a snapshot of like this is where i think maybe i should be at but what we often recommend is just tracking your food for you know seven to 10 days, well, three to 10 days really, and then getting an average and looking at your body weight and going, okay, so my body weight stayed the same, eating this many calories, and that's probably in and around maintenance calories, right? And let's assume we're looking for weight loss here. Maybe we're eating 200 to 300 below that maintenance calories, right? So let's assume we've done that. But now we want to set our, our macros. We've you know got my fitness pal or one of the other you know tracking apps where do I set my calories, right? Or sorry, not my calories. I've set my calories. Where do I set my carbs? Where do I set everything else? Yeah. So carbs is a funny one because I think before it was, you know, just cut out carbs um, for women with PCOS. That was the general recommendation. What we know now is kind of more of a, of a moderate um, carbohydrate intake, kind of even sub kind of 45% is, is a good place for a lot of women. Again, it's not a, a good to make a blanket recommendation because insulin sensitivity will vary between women with PCOS, particularly like the lean um, phenotype might have kind of better insulin sensitivity than um, the kind of, you know, higher BMI phenotype. Um, so you're looking not only at, at carb um, quantity, so that kind of sub 45%, um, but also the, the, the quality. So focusing primarily um, on complex carbohydrates or kind of lower um, lower GI or low food, foods that are have a lower kind of glycemic load as well. Um, just so when you're kind of having those carbohydrates that they're not kind of like hitting that bloodstream as, as, as quickly. Um, and then kind of pairing, um, pairing your carbohydrate meals kind of with, you know, a source of protein kind of with a source of fats. Um, and if you're having kind of the bulk of your carbohydrates around, um, training, um, so with, um, so with the, the insulin sensitivity, so insulin, essentially when you have, um, a carbohydrate like based meal or whatever, um, and that kind of glucose or sugar kind of hits your bloodstream, insulin will help take it kind of from the bloodstream and kind of into your cells, into your muscles to be used for energy. So with, um, insulin kind of more resistance states is we need more insulin to be able to do that. Um, so you kind of develop more of a kind of hyperinsulinemia. And again, that has knock on effects on our hormonal kind of endocrine system as well. And why you see a lot of, you know, menstrual irregularities and effects on thyroid, cortisol, etc. It's a really complex interplay of, of your hormones. Um, but that's why there is such a focus on carbohydrates. But again, it's not about tank tanking your carbohydrates as we used to think it is. It's more of a moderate carbohydrate, primarily focusing on complex carbs um, that have a kind of, you know, kind of lower GI. 
um but that's kind of the the main thing and then again you're looking at kind of like a, a carb tolerance i'm saying kind of quote unquote um and that's just that carbohydrates will affect people differently and that's one thing with, with clients is is not only kind of mapping out okay are we having you know the majority of our energy intake at one half of the day over the other or that we spread out evenly do we have a carb source but also the, the amount of carbs that you're having or how are you feeling afterwards are you someone that you know after you have you know two sweet potatoes are you falling asleep do you need caffeine after you have two sweet potatoes or are you someone that you know you have a certain amount of carbs at a meal and you're suddenly ravenous still like two hours later um and so kind of looking at that we need to kind of not only adjust kind of carb intake but maybe adjust um protein intake or maybe adding an extra fat source onto your meal so again it, it can be it can be quite complex um and the kind of tracking that kind of thing can seem very tedious but even doing that for like a couple of days just seeing how you feel after meals and kind of your satiety um you will start notice trends so even doing that for a couple of days um you can gain kind of a lot of insight into how not only carbohydrates but the meals that you eat how they affect you mm. yeah like the way i always think of this stuff or again i'm an idiot so i have to use analogies um but the way i always think of like insulin sensitivity like insulin like again i i did in preparation for this read a lot of stuff on uh like reddit and different things like people just asking about pcos being like oh what's the story here and the way people talk about <clears throat> insulin it can be very misleading right we'll talk about insulin in terms of like it has two main roles right we'll just say two right it has a multitude of roles but let's just categorize it as two right the first one is kind of like what you explained there insulin is helping get glucose into the cell here right so the way i often use the metaphor for that is you can imagine insulin is kind of like the the bouncer at the door you're trying to get into the club your glucose you're all dressed up you look great you know you're trying to get into the cell that's the club right that's where you want to be right or at least that's where the body wants you to be they don't want you on the streets right that's the bloodstream right so insulin is the bouncer at the door right so when you have enough glucose in the cell insulin goes up and goes right i'm going to knock on the door yeah there's enough room get into the cell right but now let's assume we have some sort of situation where we're a little bit resistant to that signal right now we can imagine you're a little bit resistant the bouncer's not going to let you in because that cell is already full that club is already yeah, it's pretty busy in there uh, you're going to wait out here in the bloodstream for a while right now they might knock on the door takes a little bit while for you know the people in there to let you in you know or maybe they actually you know they're just not listening to that signal knock on the door insulin is going i'm knocking on the door and insulin goes all right look i need one of my mates over here brings up his mate, right? Okay, the two of us are going to knock on the door. Now we've got more insulin in the bloodstream, right? We've got more gl glucose in the bloodstream. There's a queue building up outside, right? So that's kind of what happened, what's happening when you're insulin resistant. You're just not sensitive to that knock on the door, right? Now that can be caused by a number of things. It can be caused by poor sleep, right? That's one of the things we'll talk about later on. Like if you have poorer sleep, we can imagine that the guy who's doing the in-between, like, yeah, the insulin knocks on the door, but the guy who's supposed to open the door, he's a bit tired. He's like, oh, was that a knock? He's half asleep, right? So when we're, you know, tired, we haven't slept enough, we don't want to have that, right? Because it increases our insulin resistance, right? But there are a number of other things. Being overweight or having more fat mass tends to lead to a situation where we're more insulin resistant. Because again, we can think about that if this is just glucose, it's just energy effectively. That's how the body thinks of it, right? That's again, very simplified. But if we have a cell that already has a lot of, you know, 
uh, energy stored in it, right? It has fat stored in it, right? Adipose tissue, right? Um, or there's adipose tissue around that cell signaling to it going, yeah, look, we have enough energy around here. We're all good, right? That insulin signal is going to be a little bit dampened. It's going to be a little bit, you know, oh, it's a bit busy in there. You're not going to get in, right? Um, we can also do other things to improve our insulin sensitivity, right? We can do exercise, right? So exercise improves your insulin sensitivity because it basically uses up the people in the club, right? Again, bit, bit grim, but it uses them up, right? They're all, they're all done, right? Because you've used up the energy in your cell. You've done all this, you know, contractions. You've gone to the gym, you've gone for a walk, you've done whatever. So the cell is a bit energy deficient now. We've got rid of all those people. We've processed them, whatever, right? So insulin now knocks and goes, yeah, you can go straight in. Half the time, it doesn't even need insulin to knock, right? To go in. You're just not, you're just, there's non-insulin mediated ways of getting glucose into the cell, right? So again, that'll be important later on when we talk about exercise and stuff, right? That's one thing. So energy, or sorry, insulin, you can think of it as a kind of energy storage hormone. Now, that's what oftentimes people will think of it as, right? But insulin also plays a role in regulating our endocrine system or hormonal system, right? Because again, when we talked about amenorrhea in the last podcast or whenever it was, we're talking about a situation where your body is getting a signal from the food that you eat and going, we're in a low energy environment, right? We have to downregulate some of these things, these hormones, these, you know, your menstrual cycle, all these different things, reproductive cycle, so that I can kind of, you know, conserve energy right a lot of that is being signaled through insulin so insulin is also signaling how many people are in the cells how many people are in the bloodstream i often think of this again using that same analogy it's like that bouncer who's knocking on the door he has one of those little clicky counters right and he's clicking the amount of people he's like, all right there's this much there's this much and that click is going back to headquarters and going right jesus actually we need to open up more clubs or we need to you know start doing stuff with this incident or you know there's a lot of people in the streets here or there's not a lot of people in the streets here you know it's basically just a management system right i mean that's the way i think of it that's the metaphor the analogy that i use again i'm an idiot so you know take that for what you will um but that helps me really understand the stuff because then I can go, okay, well, what are we actually trying to do here when we manipulate our calories? We're trying to create an environment where there's less people in the club, right? We're trying to lose some fat here because that's going to make these cells a little bit emptier, right? So there's more room in the club. Happy days, right? When we're trying to manipulate our carbohydrates, we're kind of trying to manipulate how many people are in the bloodstream. Now that's very simplified because there is also fat in the bloodstream and you know a lot of other things. But we're trying to manipulate that so that we don't have a huge buildup of, oh, we've got a lot of carbohydrates, a lot of glucose in the bloodstream straight away. So if you eat some sugar, for example, that's going to get into the bloodstream a lot quicker, right? So now all of a sudden, the dancer's knocking on the door going, Jesus, there's loads of people out here. That's a knock on the door a lot more, right? So he's going to go, right, I'm doing a lot of work here. I'm going to call my mates. So you get this higher insulin response, right? But then all of a sudden, it's empty. The streets are empty, but you still have all these insulin molecules, you know, swimming around, right? Uh, so that's one case. But if we think about what we're trying to do here, we don't want to have, in PCOS, we don't want to have this super high signaling of, yeah, we have a lot of energy available, right? Because that's going to lead to a situation where you actually increase your hormone you know, synthesis, your, your hormonal output, if you will. You're going to put yourself in a situation where you produce more androgens. Because if you said to me right now, I have someone, I want to increase my testosterone. I'm going to put them on a higher carbohydrate diet and keep them lean. 
right? Because that's going to get their, their testosterone as high as it can be because that's getting insulin to signal. You have a lot of energy available. Cool. Let's make all the hormones that we want, right? In PCOS, we don't want that. We want insulin to be at a nice baseline level. It's not super high. So you're getting this cascade of, you know, hyperandrogenism, et cetera. So what we're trying to do here is control the amount of glucose that gets into the bloodstream, right? And then we're also trying to make sure that the, the club has enough capacity for them, right? So we can do that from both perspectives. And we'll talk about exercise and sleep and stuff in a minute as well. But when we're talking about the carbohydrates we eat in the diet, what we want to do is we want to control the amount, first of all, so the quantity. And then we also want to control the quality so that they're being dripped out into the bloodstream, right? So we have quantity. So we, let's say we've got our calories. We can go, right, how much do we want? Again, you used to have this kind of perspective in the medical sphere or whatever, where it's like, we just want to get carbs as low as possible, right? And again, you can imagine that's that's okay, but it generally isn't the best longer term. It's, it's a hard diet to follow as well. Really low carb diets are quite hard to follow, right? Now, you might get some great weight loss with that. For some people, it's really helpful. But again, we potentially run into issues down the road, right? So we're kind of going, right, we want somewhere in the range of, you know, 30 to 50% of the diet from carbohydrates, right? Let's just set that as the baseline, right? Now, oftentimes I'll set five, or set a protein and fats first, which we'll talk about in a second. And then I'll be like, right, the rest of it is coming from carbohydrates, right? We'll say we start that, we'll just say 50% here, right? But then we're also looking at our food selection choices. We're going, right, we need to actually choose foods that are higher in fiber or have a lower glycemic index, right? And this is oftentimes whole grains or, you know, starchier carbohydrates that have a lot more fiber in them, like potatoes rather than like, you know, white pasta or something like that. And you know, we're choosing foods that re result in less glucose immediately hitting the bloodstream. And then we're also choosing a meal pattern that also reduces that, such as adding some fats to the meal, adding some protein to the meal, right? So that's kind of the way I think of it. And I often explain it like that. Um, but I'm interested if either of you have any extra thoughts on that. No, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, I think that you can... You, you, you break this down into two different categories. One, the diet that is aiming at weight loss, like weight loss and the presence of an energy deficit independently and together create better insulin sensitivity. So they're going to improve your insulin sensitivity. They're going to lower um, levels um, of insulin that's being released as well. Um, and those two, two things often, but not always, go together. So that's one part of this. But there's also like as we've discussed um, throughout this podcast, the goal isn't always just weight loss. So you can improve insulin sensitivity, you can improve glucose regulation um, in the absence of weight loss as well. And that comes down to increasing your uh, dietary fiber, more complex carbohydrates than simple carbohydrates. Those things can help for sure. Um, calorie management still matters, like because it's not like if you're not losing weight, you just get to eat as much as you want. You still want to be around maintenance, um, and those things are still going to be important for glucose regulation. Obviously, exercise, all the things that we're going to discuss is incredibly important as well for both insulin-dependent and non-insulin-dependent uh, glucose uptake. Um, and yeah, protein intake as well. So all those things in the diet are going to be helpful. Fantastic. All right, so let's assume we've got the carbs sorted, right? We're eating 
whatever, 30 to 50%, somewhere in around there. We're looking at, Nicholas said, we're looking at a response to that. Do we feel good after that? Do we feel hungry? Like, what's the story there, right? After that, again, we're really spreading that out throughout the day. In general, we're not going, oh, I eat all my carbs at dinner or whatever, right? Like, that's fine, but we don't really want to have those huge bolus doses, right? Because again, that's more glucose in the bloodstream regardless. We just, we've eaten a lot of them, right? So spread it out throughout the day, low glycemic index, possibly higher fiber. We're pairing that with protein and fats at each of our meals, ideally, right? After that, what we probably want to do is set our protein, right? I generally set protein first because it's just, I think it's one of the more important ones. I often, often set fiber then after it, which people don't generally do. But either way, protein, it seems to be that roughly 30% of the diet from protein seems to be effective for PCOS, right? Now there's been research in both sides of things going like, well, what's a low protein diet? How does that affect things? How does a higher protein diet? How does that affect things? And like, there's mixed results on both sides of that. In general though, like you could say that some amino acids are insulinogenic, so they will actually result in insulin being secreted, right? But in general, if you eat a protein meal and a carbohydrate meal, it's leading to a better glucose management a better area under the curve if you want to call it like that um, of your glucose staying within a nice range right so we're generally going right how much protein do we need you know you could argue the point on this especially in someone that is overweight you could be like well how much do we actually need to get um because again we talked about this before you know if we base protein on lean body mass versus if we base protein needs on body mass you're going to get two completely different numbers if you use the same like grams per kilo amount right so like in general i'm probably setting protein somewhere in the range of 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilo if we've got this like lean pcos i might go up to that kind of two grams that's generally i'll be like all right you're leaner let's go for the two maybe 2.2 grams per kilo but in general if you're like right there's a bit of overweight here like we're fatter than we want to be i'm probably just going to go 1.5 in and around there like yeah we can modify it based on the person's preference like for example they might also be a vegan or a vegetarian and it might be harder to get that much protein so we have to modify that but in my experience i'm like look 1.5 to 2.5 somewhere in that range once you're getting in there i'm quite happy i don't think we need to belabor the point and go oh well actually you know 1.75 is actually the ideal perfect amount um but do any of you guys have any difference of opinion there no definitely not it's just it's just about getting it in getting it in regularly you know protein has the dual role of kind of helping with weight loss kind of increasing satiety and then just helping with the glycemic response as well so it is just about kind of drilling that point home as well it's like you know um a lot of women can kind of skim out on 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 protein um you know particularly if they're leaning more towards plant-based diets so it is just kind of drilling home the the importance of why we're doing that um more than anything and also it can improve muscle mass, which is ideal here because then when we're exercising, we have this kind of sink. Well, even when we're not exercising, we have this kind of sink for glucose in the terms of actually having muscle mass, right? So exercising, resistance training, especially, which we'll talk about in a second, and eating enough protein, that's going to be really beneficial for getting your blood glucose in a really good level, right? Now, fats, um, we both want to think about quality and quantity again with this stuff. Um, but what are your thoughts here on uh, fats, Nicola? 
Yeah, so like you're saying, yeah, quality and quantity. So you want to prioritize mostly polyunsaturated fats, particularly our um, omega-3 fatty acids. You know, they can help with insulin sensitivity, um, inflammation. And um, the opposite then is true of diets that are high um, in saturated fats and trans fats. So PCOS can be associated with dyslipidemia. Um, so it's important to, you know, kind of have that that counterbalance of like our, you know, quote unquote, good fats and the omegas and just making sure that the majority of the diet isn't composed of of saturated fats. Again, going back to the same analogy I used earlier on. Sorry, I always do this because I'm an idiot. Um, but like saturated fats, they're very like, if you want to think of like sterically, they're very easy to pack really closely together. So these fats make up your cell membrane, right? And if you have a lot of saturated fats in the diet, you know, they're potentially making up more of that cell membrane, right? So as a result of that, those cells are a little bit more packed tightly together. And this would be using the analogy I used earlier on. That would be like that door to the club. It's a really thick, you know, heavy fire door. So when insulin knocks on the door, you know, the, the sound the inside, you don't really hear that, right? Whereas really more polyunsaturated fats or even monounsaturated fats, you know, that door is a little bit easier to hear the signal, right? That's just, you know, the analogy I often use, right? That's not perfect, but whatever, right? Um, and then fats in terms of the, the quantity that we're consuming, you know, we're probably just going to use whatever calories we have left. You know, we're going to go, right, we set protein, we've set our carbohydrates we're trying to get like a higher fiber higher fiber lower uh, glycemic index uh, carbohydrates source and then whatever calories we have left we're going to go for fats and we're going to try to prioritize polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats versus saturated fats right and again we're spreading the calories throughout the day we're not doing any like skipping meals etc um and then what we're ultimately looking for is probably in this kind of range of five to 10% weight loss. If we're trying to lose weight as a, an insulin sensitizing, you know, thing, and that seems to improve fertility and a lot of the other symptoms associated with PCOS. Right. So that's the diet side of things. And that's, again, people are like, wow, how do I set this stuff? There you go. There's the blueprint. Right. Now, obviously you would still have to modify things over time. And that's like what we do in coaching. We're going to go, right. This is the best case scenario or best starting point that we can think of but it's going to need to be modified over time right now training side of things um this is obviously something that we also need to deal with because this has effects in terms of building muscle it has effects in terms of bone mineral density it has effects in terms of you know just glucose disposal in general and insulin sensitivity insulin sensitizing in general um so training gary and i ask you because you've been quiet for a while what's the story with training Lift weights and do your aerobic exercise. That's simple. <laughs> In all seriousness, it, the recommendations are, are very similar to what we would give to anyone else. Okay, so you want to train. Absolutely, first and foremost. We know, again, that exercising, both the process and the adaptations can increase both insulin and non-insulin dependent glucose uptake if we're focused solely on the insulin sensitizing side of things. Um, it's, it's really, really important. And one of the good things I think that is nice for women with PCOS is that sometimes we actually have a more favor, favorable response to training uh, due to the hyperandrogenic state. So um, as we said uh, at the beginning of the podcast, people with PCOS tend to be overrepresented uh, to some degree in high-level sport uh, because there is some degree of advantage conferred by that hyperandrogenic state. So you will probably have a favorable response to training I have, like, with, with, with in saying that, I have met 
a couple of women over the years who've uh, one in person and then a couple who messaged me about, who have PCOS and they were actually concerned about growing muscle too fast. And like generally when people say this to me, I'm like, I'll give it a rest. Like you're not gaining muscle too fast. I wish I could gain muscle too fast. Like, yeah. Like, you know, you're like, Oh, it's the classic meme. Like, Oh, girls think they're going to get bulky. You're not going to get bulky. But like these girls were jacked, <laughs> you know, they were jacked. And you know, one of them was like, like, look at my shoulders. Like I do not want my shoulders to be any bigger than this. And I'm like, okay, this is one of those rare scenarios where I'm like, fair enough. Okay. If you're someone with a hyperandrogenic state and you're, gaining more muscle than you would like then maybe bias you're training a little bit more towards the aerobic side of things but i think to be fair still even with pcos most people are not going to be in that position most people are going to be happy to gain a bit of muscle to get a bit stronger and in general what i would recommend is somewhere between at least three days of resistance training per week and then generally trying to meet the uh, aerobic uh, training guidelines for health Uh, not any different for pcos i'd still aim for 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week um, and then add on your resistance training uh, as you wish. So yeah, I think it's, it's really important from a health perspective here because like the insulin sensitivity side of things to the side, we know that we're dealing with potentially an elevated cardiometabolic risk here. So even if you're not you know, gonna improve your body weight or cosmetics aside, the process of exercising is going to reduce that cardiometabolic risk. And that's something that's obviously uh, very important long-term. Nicola, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just, just a couple of things to, to add to that one. Like I was saying about fasted training as well, mm. just kind of being, being careful with that, that that can increase your cortisol. Another thing is, is, is like checking kind of where someone's starting off again. Like if someone's, you know, 100 plus kg that you know kind of you know running or that kind of getting to the gym three days a week might not be realistic they might not want to go to the gym they might not you know feel comfortable yet going to the gym um so even just getting someone out walking um three days a week is 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 a great start so it is just monitoring where like the ideal scenario is getting someone um doing their aerobic fitness is getting them into the gym doing their training um but um like i have they're just kind of sometimes just like sitting less <laughs> you know if they're if they're a sedentary job you know just getting up moving around every hour can be a really good start um and then over time once they kind of get more confident trying to get someone to do more resistance training um, um and then another thing that i was just mentioning was just hit training as well again if you're a mixture between you know in a calorie deficit already in a highly stressed state doing like a high intensity training again can just be counterproductive of just you know increasing your cortisol so um, I would particularly if you're if you're dieting, if you're someone with PCOS, I would be leaning more towards kind of a lower intensity aerobic combined with resistance training. 100 percent. Like the way I kind of think about this is like you want to do a mix of resistance training and aerobic training. And with aerobic training, you want to keep it in that kind of actual aerobic zone. Like you don't want to be pushing into those kind of anaerobic zones. You could argue that maybe it's beneficial because you know they're the zones that increase glycolysis and you're really using the carbohydrates. But the the trade-off in fatigue, the trade-off in terms of stress and all that kind of stuff, it's just not worth it. Right. So what I generally do is I'd be like, right, we're gonna have two to three, maybe two to four training sessions a week, resistance training wise. 
at, in those sessions, I'm probably going to do some aerobic conditioning at the end. You know, let's say you're at an hour of training, we're doing 40 minutes of weights, 20 minutes of aerobic conditioning, right? And then on all of your other days, we're at least doing some sort of activity. We're trying to keep ourselves active. Now that could be walking, that could be whatever else. Now that's fantastic. Ideally, ideal case scenario here, we're doing weights three days a week. We're doing uh, cardio training three days a week on top of that as well. You know, let's say we're doing six days a week, straight through. We're doing alternating days, you know, cardio resistance, cardio resistance, cardio resistance, one day off, right? And that, if you're like, right, I want to really just dial everything in, that's going to build you muscle. That's going to always keep you in this kind of post-exercise state of, you know, increased insulin sensitivity. It's going to really improve your cardiovascular fitness like very quickly. Um, so it hits everything. Now, obviously, that means that you're in the gym six days a week, which is not, you know, for a lot of people, that's a little bit excessive, you know? But let's assume, right, you want to get this dialed in, three days a week with a mix of cardio and resistance training, happy days. On top of that, then we just start layering in that kind of general day-to-day -day activity. We're trying to get some more walks in throughout the day. We're basically just trying to keep ourselves, you know, using glucose, using energy, again, putting ourselves potentially in a calorie deficit here by doing more activity throughout the day, especially if we have weight to lose. If we're in that lean PCOS, maybe you don't want to necessarily put yourself into a calorie deficit. Um, but we want to basically be active throughout the day. You can use like a, a watch or whatever, like those fitness tracking watches and track your steps and set yourself, oh, I'm going to hit 10,000 steps per day. I'm going to make sure I spread that out. That can be really good, but it's just a proxy. It's just not, it's not perfect, but it can be really good in terms of keeping you active throughout the day, you know? But do either of you have anything else to say on training? Um, no? No. Really. Fantastic. Let's get on to lifestyle because this is a very... A very quick one right in terms of lifestyle we've got three things we often talk about in terms of overall lifestyle management we've got non-exercise activity thermogenesis which we kind of just touched on there a second ago in terms of get out for some walks be generally active you know you could argue that doing something like 10 minute walks after meals can be really good for using up like creating a bit of a a sink for the glucose for the, the food that you've just eaten right and so being frequently active that's what we want to do the next thing then is we want to make sure that sleep is really dialed in right we're looking for seven to nine hours per night and again we talked about that when i was doing my analogy my metaphor um so we want to make sure that sleep is in a good place we've talked about sleep before on the podcast don't think we need to labor the point here but sleep nine, seven to nine hours, get it in. It will improve things, right? Stress management. This is actually really important for everyone, but especially for PCOS. So we do need to do some sort of stress management techniques, whether that's, you know, you're just, you know, setting up your life in a way that's less stressful. Like you don't have to be like, oh, I get up at 5 a.m. and I do this. And, you know, like having a really stressful, always on the go lifestyle. Like Gary, you've been doing exams the last while. Nicola, you work as a doctor. So both of your lives are stressful at the moment, you know, but if you were dealing with PCOS here and you're kind of going, I really need to dial this in, you're going to look at that lifestyle schedule that you have and go, okay, where can I reduce stress? How can I reduce that stress in my life? Now, sometimes, you know, people can't do it. Gary, you're doing exams. It's not like you can go, sorry, I'm just going to ring up my professor there and say, you know, uh, can I just not do these exams? You know, it's, it's not going to happen, right? Or I'm um, worried about my ovaries, doc. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so stress management, we've talked about it previously on the podcast. We will definitely be talking about it in future on the podcast, but we want to do some sort of stress management, right? Um, I don't know if either of you guys have anything to say on either sleep, frequent activity, or stress management. 
Yeah, I, I like I think with stress management is probably one of the most helpful things that you can do. But unfortunately, like a lot of the advice for stress management is just really cringy. You know, it's just kind of like meditate, do some yoga. So it, it is just taking a look at your life and saying, OK, what are what are the biggest things that are stressing me out? And which of these can I actually change? Because, you know, sitting down being like, OK, I guess I'll schedule in some journaling. It's just it's really not helpful for actually the majority of people. But just taking a look and be like, what can I actually change here? and just just focusing on that that can be a really good start yeah and look there's a million and one stress management techniques out there you can look them all up some of them are like you said incredibly cringy some of them are a little bit more practical and they're like right actually that makes sense i can just do that you know um so there's well there's two sections left on this now we don't want to go too long extra on the podcast but um with these two we can kind of get through them quite quickly and um, because look, one of the things is supplements and the other thing is prescription drugs. Now, if you're talking to your doctor, they're the one that's going to prescribe drugs, right? And what I'll say is all of the issues that people try to solve with supplements, they're better management, better managed with prescription drugs, you know? So if you really have that issue, talk to your doctor and they'll be able to help you with specific prescription drugs, you know? And um, maybe we'll just start on the prescription drugs, just quickly go through them because I know, again, going on those forums i saw people going like i don't even know what this drug does and like they're just being told their doctor says to, to take this um but there's a number of drugs that are recommended for pcos we've got metformin we've got you know uh i can't even remember uh, oral contraceptive pills um we've also got finasteride you know, that's often recommended uh we've got weight loss drugs or weight loss supporting drugs we've got statins um and then we've got some we'll call them fertility drugs, right? Um, I don't know which one you use likes uh, drugs more. So I don't know, either of you can can take it away here. Yeah, so in, firstly, there, I suppose it's important to understand that some of these drugs are, I guess, dealing with some of the side effects of PCOS or the symptoms of PCOS. And therefore they're not general recommendations. Like for example, something like um, finasteride or minoxidil for androgenic alopecia like that's that's uh, assuming that someone is dealing with um or you, you wrote down on the thing reduce excess hair growth so it's kind of both like finasteride and minoxidil can be used for the hair growth irregularities in pcos uh, there's kind of two sides to that you can get um loss of hair or thinning of, the, of your hair and potentially little bald patches in your hair um, and then also the excess hair growth so depending on what you're dealing with um, drugs can be prescribed accordingly um, statins obviously if you've uh, elevated cardiovascular risk um, or you've got high levels of ldl sometimes you don't need necessarily need specific lipid profile to be prescribed a statin it depends on your baseline cardiovascular risk um, but that's something that might be prescribed again that's that's not a blanket recommendation as such uh, metformin is something that tends to be quite efficacious um, it improves uh, insulin sensitivity so that's something that is obviously important as part of this process. Um, and that can also help with weight loss if you're engaging in the weight loss process. It's likely that a lot more weight loss drugs will probably um, make their way into PCOS treatment in the coming years. You know, you've seen recent studies on liraglutide, semaglutide, kind of preliminary trials that have been quite promising for weight loss and obesity. And given the pathophysiology of PCOS, I would see those as being probably quite useful in PCOS, but just haven't been studied properly yet. Um, so that's likely to, to occur at some stage. 
Um, and then you've got the drugs that I guess are a bit more central to the pathophysiology of PCOS, um, the female drugs. So the oral contraceptive pill is something that actually is uh, quite efficacious in uh, PCOS. If you're presenting with acne, those symptoms of hirsutism, um, insulin resistance, et cetera, those central features that we mentioned, um, the oral contraceptive pill is something that is uh, recommended as first line treatment in guidelines. So uh, that is something that's worth considering. And the reason that that's really important to discuss and really important to look into is because you actually see a lot of people who kind of throw out this statement um, without actually looking at the evidence saying that, oh, doctors just love prescribing the pill to mask PCOS. And it's like, not really, you know, it's, that's, that's not the goal. It's not just to mask it and that they could just get to the root cause. It's that this actually helps people with PCOS. Um, it's not just masking it. You can still do all the other things that we've mentioned alongside taking the oral contraceptive pill. Um, so that's why you should just speak to your doctor with, uh, in relation to any drugs that you're going to take, obviously, um, and recognize that any drugs that would be prescribed would be dependent on your specific phenotype. We've mentioned already that there's huge heterogeneity in how someone might present with PCOS, and therefore you shouldn't expect a generic recommendation for diet or training or prescription drugs, drugs or supplements. Nicola, do you have anything else to add to that as you're actually a doctor and Gary's just a pretender? <laughs> there, there are just two things that Gary mentioned it already about the OCP. Like, you know, a lot of people have their pitch, pitchforks out for like oral contraceptives. And the thing is that, that they are really helpful for a lot of women and um, particularly, you know, preventing pregnancy. So I think, you know, I, again particularly like on social media people are like come off the oral contraceptive pill like it does like all these negative side effects and there there are those um negative parts of it to consider but as well kind of coming off that you know trying to track your menstrual natural cycles just isn't something that's realistic for a lot of people um so if you are someone that is like hearing all of this you know that you need to come off the pill again you know there's there's nothing wrong with you staying on the pill if, if that's what kind of suits you and, and your lifestyle. So it's just it's just to be, you know, mindful of that as well, that there are benefits to to, to being on it. Um, and then the second thing then um, about fertility. So I mentioned earlier, you know, that it's a huge cause of infertility, but there are there are things that can be done for that. And there are medications like clomiphene that, that we were mentioning that, that can um, help with ovulation. So if you're kind of listening to it and you're like, what am I going to do? Or I might have PCOS, am I infertile? There, there's so much that can be done for it. So it's, it's not something to, um, to overly worry about. Just speak to your doctor. Yeah, exactly. And I mentioned earlier on that like uh, you see a lot of uh, correlation between PCOS and people who use like IVF and you know, different fertility methods. And it, this is one of those things where it's like, is this chicken or the egg? It's like you have populations, PCOS seems to run in families. These populations are using increased like enhanced fertility methods. And all of a sudden their daughter has PCOS and they're like, oh, it must be the enhanced fertility methods. And it's like, well, why did they need those enhanced fertility methods before? Oh, because their mother also had PCOS and she was conceived without any of these like drugs or anything so it's one of those things where we'll have further clarity on that stuff in the future you know we can make all these mechanistic hypotheses or hypothesize uh, about like what's going on but realistically we don't fucking know again when we talk about the causes we don't fucking know <laughs> you know um but now supplements we'll get on to the big one we're actually just gonna fly through this because realistically the majority of the supplements are just not that helpful 
right? There's just not a lot of research. Like you can go, like the only reason we're going to go through these is because you will see them brought up. Again, as I said, I went through all these like message boards or whatever. You will see them brought up a lot. You know, people don't want to talk about their diet. They don't want to talk about their training. They're like, well, what supplements can I take? Or what, what can I do here? And supplements can be potentially really helpful, especially in the cases of deficiency or shoring up a nutrient that you're just struggling to get in the diet. But in general, for PCOS, like supplements are just not doing a whole pile, except for one seems to be quite efficacious, but the rest of them, eh, like they can help, but they're, they're just not, they're not fantastic, you know? Um, so <clears throat> supplements, I'm just going to go through all of these, the potential reason you might use them. And I'm going to leave the big hitter for last. So you'll often see berberine uh, recommended for PCOS in these like, you know, supplement things. And that's because berberine, works somewhat like metformin so it's increasing insulin sensitivity here it's helping with glucose management here so you could argue oh we'll use berberine that'll help with the insulin stuff that i need to deal with with pcos but it's it's good like don't get me wrong like i think berberine is actually a fantastic supplement but it also pales in comparison to just managing your diet and managing uh, your training right? So it's just not that effective, right? Uh, N-acetylcysteine, NAC, you'll often see, oh, this is, this is really good. That can improve insulin sensitivity. It can also improve fertility in certain cases um, and uh, improve health immunity. There's a few different things that it can, it can do, but ultimately, look, it, it's not doing anything to really like cure the issues with uh, PCOS. It can be nice to add to the diet. Like I take uh, N-acetylcysteine um, myself, I think, you know, for a few things that I think uh, are beneficial for it, but I wouldn't be just generically going, oh, everyone needs to take this or everyone with PCOS needs to take this. L-carnidine, it increases fat, metab fat metabolism, but it doesn't actually increase it. It just supports fat metabolism. So people often go, oh yeah, that's, I'm going to use that. L-carnidine also does increase, well, in some studies, increase androgen receptor density. So this is often recommended, but it wouldn't be something that I'd be like, yeah, look, you have a hyperandrogenism. Let's increase your androgen receptors. Like it, it, for me, it just, doesn't necessarily make a huge amount of sense and um, maybe some people find a benefit from it but it, it would it's a no for me you know magnesium magnesium is actually one of the ones that i think a lot of people should in general supplement with and um, but you can also just get it from your diet if you eat more leafy greens and um, which would su be supportive of you know better craving management better diet in general and um, but magnesium does have a, a, a lot of roles a lot of you know potential benefits to people with PCOS with all of these different ones, you can just go on examine.com and type them in and you'll get the, the research on them and they're really like nice, easy to read, understand format. You know, there's other uh, supplements such as this hormone or this not hormone, this supplement called Vitex is, you know, a huge, big name to it. I'm not going to try to pronounce it or anything. And that's often touted as being able to improve hormone balance in women. Um, and it can help in certain cases, but with PCOS, like, I just don't see the, the research to support it. It's just not something that I'd be like, yeah, like this is, this is really well supported. Everyone should be taking this, you know, zinc, zinc can help with hormone balance. It also can help with increasing androgens. So maybe not, but it's, it is something that is required in the diet, but you can get it from the diet. So you don't necessarily need to supplement, you know, chromium as well can be quite beneficial improving insulin sensitivity. But again, you can get this from the diet. You also don't need a huge amount of it. And it's also just not that effective. Like it pales in comparison to 
going for a walk, for example, you know, so get your priorities straight. Uh, Omega-3s, I actually think omega-3s are fantastic, but this goes back to basically it just being a dietary supplement. It's basically just going, all right, I'm just not getting enough polyunsaturated fats in my diet. I want to take some omega-3s to help with that, right? So you could argue, yeah, take some omega-3s, but you could just eat some fish, you know? So again, not something that's a necessity. Vitamin D, look, I think vitamin D is fantastic. It does help with hormone balance. It helps with insulin sensitivity. It, has, it helps with a huge number of things. But as long as you're within the vitamin D range, like the, your D level is in a good place, you don't necessarily need to supplement. If you get enough sun, you don't need to supplement. Now, a lot of people in the Western and Northern uh, world are deficient in vitamin D or at least you know, subclinically deficient. And um, so increasing your vitamin D could potentially be beneficial. And um, you've also got alpha lipoic acid. And um, this is often touted as increasing insulin sensitivity, but again, pales in comparison to exercise and just managing your diet. So it wouldn't be something that I'd be like, yeah, you need to be taking this. It does have some antioxidant properties, which you know potentially are beneficial, but it's not, you know, it's not fantastic. Uh, caffeine, uh, caffeine can be used. It does actually increase your insulin sensitivity. It does also potentially make you more energetic. So you can actually get out, do your walks and do all the stuff that's needed to increase that insulin sensitivity. It does also increase sex hormone binding globulin in, in uh, a lot of people, especially in women, it seems. Um, but I wouldn't be necessarily using it for that purpose. You know, uh, the reason you might want to increase your sex hormone binding globulin is because it's going to bind up that androgen uh, that we don't want those or those androgens that we don't necessarily want in PCOS. Um, and that's a, a good thought process, but it is also like sex hormone binding globulin is often thought of like, Oh, it's going to bind these up. So they're not going to be available for use. And that's not really the case. Like even when it's bound, like the testosterone or whatever can still have, effects on the cell you know so i wouldn't be digging too deep into that glutamine is often touted as being good for cravings and yeah like it can for some people but it's basically just because you're eating something that kind of tastes like sugar you know uh, well it doesn't actually taste like sugar but your your body recognizes that you have receptors and stuff in your your intestinal lining that's like oh I've, I've gotten some amino acid here your intestines do enjoy using glutamine for a, a lot of different processes so it kind of just gives you this false sense of being full, you know? And um, I'd rather just see you manage the diet in general so that you don't get these cravings, you know? Melatonin is often recommended as well for people with PCOS because there can be sleep disturbances um, and obviously improving sleep, you know, can be really beneficial. Melatonin is actually illegal in a lot of countries, including Ireland, I think. And um, I don't think it's illegal in England where I am. Um, but that is something that you have to talk to your doctor about potentially. And also, I'd rather just see you do really good sleep practices before you start thinking, I need to get some melatonin into me. I need to order this on some black market website. You know, it's just not going to be a game changer unless you're in a position where you've tried everything else and you just cannot get uh, sleep dialed in, you know? Um, so that's the majority of supplements. The one that does seem to be most effective for PCOS is inositol. You know, it, it does have a a lot of things that would potentially be beneficial for PCOS in terms of improving menstrual regulation, improving egg quality. It does reduce many of the symptoms of PCOS. Um, we ideally want to get, uh, like I should say, inositol is basically just a sugar, right? So you're basically just taking a sugar, which you know seems a bit counterintuitive when we've been talking about, but we want to reduce the glucose in our bloodstream, et cetera. But this inositol does seem to act as a signaling molecule in the body. 
Um, but we ideally want to get it in a form of myo-inositol to D-chiro-inositol in a 40 to 1 mix, right? Um, or 41 ratio. 40 to 1, I should say. That sounded like 4 to 1. Um, 40 to 1 ratio. That seems to be the most efficacious for helping with PCOS. And then we're taking that in the kind of 2,000 to 4,000 milligram range once per day now you can take it spread out throughout the day and um, some people recommend that i often find that if you have to spread out your your pills and whatever you're just less likely to take them it's just easier just to take them all at once you know one, all at one time you know and um, but and also it does seem to be really effective in, in terms of pcos management it isn't necessarily something that you need to discuss with your doctor but if you are being managed by a doctor talk to them be like you know should i take an ocetol you can go to examine.com type in an ocetol PCOS or whatever, and like stuff will come up about that. You can read up on that. You can see if it is something that you potentially want to supplement with. But that's the only one on this list that I'd be like, yeah, like this has you know relatively good research to support its use in, in PCOS. Um, but I don't know if either of you guys have any other thoughts on any of those supplements. Yeah, so I think with, with with the supplements, like you'd really just be looking at introducing them to support the the dietary and kind of lifestyle practices that you're already doing. It wouldn't be something that I'd be immediately introducing with anyone because then you just won't know if, if it's working or not. Um, but there are there are some good supplements on the market that you can get, you know, the inositol or the insidol, however you pronounce it. And it has a couple of the other stuff in, in it as well. It can have like the berberine or the or zinc or chromium added as well, um, which can be helpful um but like you're saying all, all those things have shown you know efficacy in pcos but doesn't mean you want to be taking 20 tablets it's just not realistic and or helpful <laughs> yeah it's just also your issue there half the day fucking chugging tablets yeah exactly anyway look that is pcos in a nutshell um i don't know if either of you have any kind of closing remarks because look and we said with the majority of these podcasts we've done in the female series, like we could literally have split this up and gone into really granular detail on any number of like singular things. This PCOS episode could have been 30 episodes in and of itself. We'll probably do stuff like write some articles or whatever and put them on our website in future. So you can have a reference to kind of look back on and anything that we find interesting, we can you know add there or whatever. And um, but right now, guys, do you have any like closing remarks, anything you want to say that we didn't cover or anything at all? No. No, I think just with with, with PCOS again, you know, don't self-diagnose it. Don't self-diagnose it. Um, do go to your doctor, kind of rule out other conditions that might be causing your symptoms. And then if you are someone that is diagnosed with PCOS, it can kind of seem like a long road and it can seem like that there's not much help. Um, but again, kind of going through some of the things that we went through there, like dietary kind of lifestyle um, practices are really helpful. Um, and as well, if you need any help with that, you can contact anyone on the team. We're more than happy to help. 100%. And if you're contacting anyone on the team, we're just going to send it to Nicola. She's just being, uh, <laughs> she's just being, what's the word? She's like, oh, just, you know, anyone can help. And it's you, it's you that helps. Volunteered herself. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, look, we're going to wrap up the podcast. Gary, where can people find us? Give us the old spiel. Yeah, so on that note of help, uh, Nicola and the rest of us are taking on clients at the moment. So if you are interested in coaching, whether you have PCOS or not, we'd be more than happy to help you. And that includes nutrition-only coaching or full coaching with training and nutrition, depending on your needs. So if you are interested in that, uh, you can find further information about that in the description box below. Send an application 
or else you can message any of us individually or on the triage page. If you're not following along with our social media, I would recommend that you do so. Follow Triage Method on Instagram, and then you'll find kind of the central hub of all of our content, okay? We're doing a lot of collaborative posts these days, so you'll see everyone else's individual uh, posts there as well, um, and you will learn a lot. We just did a post on PCOS uh, this morning, and we'll do a number of other uh, posts on women's health over the next few weeks uh, to go along with uh, finishing off this podcast series. So that's going to help to complete your education. So make sure you're following. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, the Triage Method newsletter, which goes out each week via email. You can subscribe below and again, get more free uh, information into your inbox. And uh, I think that's everything. What else do we have? What else do we do? Yeah, it's everything. Well, that's pretty much it. Um, anyway, look, I have nothing else to say. Nicola, do you have anything else to say? No, all good. Fantastic. Right, we're going to wrap this up. I hope everyone enjoyed this and I hope you got something from it. And again, if you can share this on your social medias, that really does help us get the word out. Other than that, peace out, guys.